Another episode, Nerds Amalgamated. I am the DJ, and with me today, I have the lovely Jovial Professor. That's the nicest thing you've ever said about me. Really? Don't expect <laughs> anything in return, though. Ah, ah, ah. I have a fiance. <laughs> She's not sharing. Ah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, have you been, Professor? I'm good. Sorry to burst your bubble there, but I'm doing well. <laughs> oh, what a crazy week it has been. <laughs> like, uh, Taliban going all crazy, uh, OnlyFans going all crazy. <laughs> yeah, apparently the reason uh, OnlyFans has decided to ban pornographic content is because they're having issues with the payment processes. Yeah, yeah. But the way they're doing it just feels like a big mistake. They're splitting off into two brands. OnlyFans is going to be the clean brand, and they're creating some only porn brand, which seems silly because I asked a couple of people I know who aren't all that internet savvy what OnlyFans means, and all of them thought it was a porn site. So <laughs> I don't think their marketing department's up to snuff. Oh, what's even more crazier is how people are saying like, oh, this will disenfranchise a lot of sex workers. And I'm like, I don't really think so. Uh, it's kind of just shoving the problem over to another site. But anyway, um, the, the COVID case numbers down south a bit and it's not, not the, uh, the greatest. Have you got your jab, DJ? <laughs> I haven't got my jab, but yeah, I've been, I've been seeing the numbers and Jeez Louise, man. <laughs> I feel like you should be, uh, should be pushing for that. You're a customer-facing job, and you're probably old enough to get the AZ. Mm. And uh, the Pfizer. <laughs> so yeah, you should check I'm... out Jimmy Rees on YouTube. <laughs> I might wait for the Pfizer, actually, but uh, yeah. yeah. It's... Well, up to you, of course. Yeah. But, you know, I'm booked in to get, um, get the Pfizer this week. Nice, nice. But, yeah. Yeah. We you should, reckon, um, uh, sorry. I was, was going to say, bef you, how long do you reckon before uh, before one of them hits the one, 1K mark in infections? Uh, I'm hoping not, because Sydney's going down a bit today, and there's sort of that two-week lead time before you see changes, mm -hmm. because the, the incubation of COVID is about two weeks. So yeah. I'm hoping the anti-lockdown protests aren't going to cause too much of a spike in another two weeks, though. <laughs> Oh, we'll see. Yeah. If it's any state, though, I'd put my money on New South Wales. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. And hoping desperately that it doesn't get into Queensland. Oh, no. No. Oh, no. Well. A anyways, uh, let let's start off with a bit Happy of... Happy news, DJ. Happy news. <laughs> yeah, let's start off with the, some positive news. You've got a story about some game development companies for Green Thumbs. Yeah, so it's something that I've thought about in the past, but I've never seen any official uh, material about it or any uh, any movements in the industry that games are kind of a big carbon user. We had a discussion a couple of months ago, actually, about the power usage of the new consoles. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, I feel like it's uh, only in the past year or so that I've seen people seeming to take 
the carbon emissions of games pretty seriously. So I've got here a uh, white paper from uh, the UKIE, and it's called the the Green Games, <clears throat> sorry, Green Games Guide. And I had a read through it the other night. Uh, what they want to do is basically get game developers to work on reducing their impact. So half of the uh, document is basically talking about all of the usual, uh, you know, fly less, drive less, ride a bike, that sort of thing. And the suggestions about how businesses can use carbon neutral or lower carbon options. But the bit I'm most interested in is the games itself. So they go in and they talk about different uh, distribution methods. There's a case study from Sony Interactive Entertainment. So they've done a research on uh, the PS4. And based on their estimates, playing games is a fairly low carbon activity compared to other leisure. And uh, they have a source that says that going to the cinema, which involves driving or taking the bus, is estimated at 2.4 kilograms of CO2 uh, emissions per hour. But video games is 0.05 kilograms of CO2 emissions per hour. So we should all stay home and play video games. (laughs) But here's the thing, though. Like, they're they're trying to calculate through, like, what, the... uh... Frames per energy wattage, if I'm if I'm mistake, if I'm not, uh, mistaken. not in this particular article, but there is a bit of a discussion about. Um, it, sorry, no, there is actually stuff in this article about reducing the energy cost of each frame. So they have advice to um, optimize your code so that you are doing less with each frame. But I'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, the Sony case study also identifies that streaming using PlayStation Now, which I'm a little bit suspicious of because Sony owns PlayStation Now and it's a subscription, it's probably the best um, dollar value that they get. So can we trust that this is accurate? I hope so, but um, the article was done by a uh, as a doctoral thesis at the University of Surrey, uh, Climate Change Implications of Gaming Products and Services by Jay Aslan, if you want to look this up for yourself. Otherwise, there's a summary in the Green Games Guide, which is available at gamesindustry.biz. We'll have links to that in the show notes. Uh, So if you play on PlayStation Now, the lowest carbon emissions are up to four to five hours of total gameplay compared to downloading the game, which obviously uses internet for your download to run the hard drive you're storing it on, and so on and so forth. Oh, so uh, PlayStation Now runs a lot of your, uh, well, runs the game in a data center, which could be more efficient than having your own discrete uh, computer. So, but wouldn't it also depend on the type of game you're playing? Like, it, it would. The power, the power usage on playing, let's say, uh, Stardew Valley on the PlayStation would be totally different to, let's say, a game of FIFA or a game of Fortnite. Yeah. It would, and you can kind of do a little unofficial test for yourself by taking a portable console like the Switch and comparing the performance you get from playing, say, Stardew Valley compared to playing uh, Doom or The Witcher. The more detailed the game is, the more power it's going to use. It's harder to get actual numbers without special tools, but it's um, you know something you can do a little test for yourself. But they estimate that 
PlayStation Now, uh, 20 hours of PlayStation Now is comparable to buying a physical disc. So if you're not going to play your game all that long, um, there's an argument to be made that maybe you shouldn't be buying a disc. I think most players will get four to five hours out of a lot of games. So downloading makes a lot of sense there. But some... But it would depend on the internet store that um like usage, wouldn't it? Like let's say uh like our internet, <laughs> which is not really uh good. Like it takes long just to get the game running. Uh, well, of course, downloading on a slower internet connection will use more power, probably because you're keeping the computer awake for longer. On the other hand, faster networks use more power anyway. I don't know the details of that. I think they've probably taken that into account. Yeah. But then, so if you're only playing for a few hours, play with PlayStation Now. If you want to play for more than four or five hours, buy the game and download it. If you're going to play it for more than 20 hours, you can get away with buying the CD. But the other problem is with downloading the file size, as we were just mentioning, uh, for games up to five gigabytes, Sony estimate that downloading has the lowest carbon emissions. For larger games, PlayStation Now has the uh, lower emissions for a few hours, bringing that back to the first point. Uh, but they do point out that you can use PlayStation Now as a trial to decide if you like a game before you download it. And that would let you determine whether you actually want to download it and buy it. Saving you money, hopefully, and also saving you from having to download and install a full game and take up all of that, uh, all of those emissions. Yeah. But so, that was back from the uh, PlayStation 4. Although Aslan's study says that the. It's a great name, Aslan. <laughs> Do not cite the old magic to me. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. Um, <laughs> they point out that the inter- power usage of the internet has halved every two years since 2000, which uh, goes against my experience that higher power, well, higher speed um, lands use more power. But anyway, um, they probably know better than I do. And that PlayStation Now might change in the future. So there's but- also sections there about, um, in the article about how to work within your business to reduce your carbon emissions. And a process they suggest to go through identifying weak points and then reducing and reviewing, so on and so forth. Uh, so in terms of game development, is this going to be uh, a benefit or a curse for, for game developers? I mean, it's good like we're seeing this sort of, um, not, this sort of metrics uh, and the facts to us. It's, it's good to get those facts. But then how will it benefit the game developers in a big picture sense? So as an individual user, you're probably not going to to think about this at all. Like, I don't look at a game I want to buy and think, am I saving the environment by buying it online? I just look at the best price. But I think as a developer, the um, there are things you can do in the office which apply to any office. Uh, using more efficient equipment, switching it off when you're not using it, flying less, because commercial flights are a pretty big deal uh, for greenhouse emissions. emissions. Uh, and of course, buying offsets, you know, planting trees and stuff to offset the carbon emissions you're outputting. 
although there is a carbon offset forest in California, which is on fire right now, completely negating the point. Yeah, uh, it's interesting you mentioned that. It was interesting you mentioned because I I remember a couple of years ago that uh, someone made someone wrote an article saying the uh, best way to to if you want to fight fight climate change, here are the options: sell your car, avoid flights, go vegetarian, and uh, don't have kids. Yeah, a lot of those. Well, you know, all of that makes sense. So. Even the most efficient aircraft engine is still only roughly as efficient as a car with a single passenger. Uh, that number is for the A380. It might have changed more recently, but you know you are moving 300 people, but you're using the same emissions that it would take to drive 300 people. Yeah. Now then, there's the argument about embodied carbon, how much it takes to build a car versus plane. I don't know. If, don't think that's taken into account in the numbers that I've read. And, yeah, if we all stopped having kids, climate change would end. Well, not end, but greenhouse gas emissions would end in about 80 years. Uh, But the bit I'm really interested in is not the stuff about making your office more efficient, because that applies to everyone, but the stuff that applies specifically to the games industry and other software jobs. But it talks about um, working out how to make your game more energy efficient. So it suggests having a green coding group to assess changes that you can make, which I think is um, a... I was thinking even before I got to this part of the document that maybe that's something a company could do. They could hire a couple of developers whose job is to work on optimizing for energy use. Uh, Reuse assets. So apart from the embodied carbon in creating the asset, every time someone has to download the asset, then um, it's creating more carbon emissions. So if you can reuse assets across multiple levels and even multiple games, uh, the Half-Life games are really good at this, actually. If you own the... You have to own them through Steam, actually. But um, if you own Half-Life 2 on Steam and buy the episodes, it will only download what it needs to make the episodes and it links it back to Half-Life 2 so that when you play the episodes, it's borrowing assets that are reused from the original installation. Yeah, but wouldn't it just... Um, okay, two questions. One, wouldn't it stifle the uh, the, the freedom of a, of, of a game developer? Into, like, okay, let's say, for example, Cyberpunk 20, 2077. Let's say, for example, it's, a, it's still in development, and you bring in the green, uh, you bring in the green coding group, Okay. And then I don't think st- a green coding group could have done any more damage than Cyberpunk 2077's devs already did. <laughs> no, but let's say let's say in in a in a parallel universe, Cyberpunk is still in development, like early development, and uh, we brought in this new coding group. Let's say that, okay? Let's say for 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 argument's sake, right? But okay, and the, and they decide like, okay, we're gonna recycle these assets and stuff. Wouldn't that just start um and wouldn't that just go like, um, I think recycling assets is not a good idea in a, in a sense? Why would they say that? Um, what was it? Because I remember the people, some groups, were, some people were saying like, okay, recycling assets is, uh, it's stupid in terms of, wait, why are you, a, are you too lazy to create your, create your um, new stuff? I don't know who you're quoting, but they're an idiot. Game devs have been reusing assets literally forever. 
The original Mario reuses the shape of the cloud for the bush. It just changes the color. It's just that we're finally, you know, we had this time in the 2000s and 2010s where we had the computing power to make every asset unique, but we didn't have the um, the concern about the carbon emissions from it. Yeah. But games still reused assets. Okay. There are even articles you can find calling out the COD games for reusing assets for buildings year after year, which, yes, it is less effort to reuse the asset, but I don't think it's actually lazy at all. I think it's smart. You can take an asset and remix it, even if you don't use the exact same asset. You can remix it and make an asset that's close but different and have a different feel to it without completely... uh, without being completely lazy. As a good example, look at the first Halo game, where the second half of the game is remixes of the first half of the levels. Except for uh, the final couple of levels, the second half of the game is basically playing back through the original levels that you've already played, but with different goals and slight differences. Okay. And uh, And my second question... Would be uh, when how would the how would this green coding group affect the quality of a game? Like uh, let's say we let, let's say you make the the best looking game with the best looking graphics, and the green coding groups go like, nah, nah, nah. Okay. You, you, gotta, that, you gotta turn down the quality. That's a concern I can see people having. I think it's not as much of a concern as they think because it does actually have recommendations in this article about that. So it does say to adapt the game specifications for your audience's average setup. So you're running, you know, you're not pushing for a, a 3090. You're running, aiming at a 2060 or whatever the most common is. You can find that out by looking at the Steam hardware survey as a really good source for that because everyone has Steam. Uh, but they also point out minimize, um, don't include the 4K assets in your default install because most people don't have 4K screens, and if you only install the assets that you're going to need, then you're saving hard drive space and the emissions from downloading. Um, minimize the amount of power going into off-screen objects. That's pretty common sense. We already yeah. try to do that. Yeah, yeah. Avoid having objects updating on every frame, uh, so reduce calls on every frame when possible. That's a more of a, an engine thing. Uh, which the green coding group could work on without actually affecting the quality of the game. Um, do tr- determine your trade-offs between live calculations and value lookups. So older games all used value tables because they didn't have the computing power to do the calculations live. And the value table is basically you go through and pre-compute uh, all of the expected results. And instead of having to do the maths every time, you just look it up. I'm not sure what the exact numbers there would be, but uh, I think in a lot of cases you can get away with using a value lookup rather than a live calculation. Mm. And they also mention something that would not affect the user at all, end user, uh, but to only load things that a particular user needs when you're developing the game. So an artist only needs the artist tools. They don't need the whole game engine that can run the full simulation. They just need to be able to model things and process them into the correct format for the game. 
Which I, which is understandable. I mean, if you if you if you're gonna do a task, you have to do the task. Like, but then again, like, it's, it, there's always the problem of like, let's say for example, the 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 artist uses a Mac, for example, and uh, needs to transfer some files from the Mac to the PC, and the PC is not compatible with the Mac stuff. So, yeah. No, that's not what they're talking about there. Uh, oh, okay. So, as an example, when I was in uni, we were using Unity. Um, everyone had a full installation of that, even though they didn't really need it. Uh, our artist would create stuff and then put it into the game, but had nothing to do with the actual game other than just putting the art into the game. So we had someone else laying out the maps, somebody else doing the coding. So the person laying out the maps and the person doing the coding would need a full install, but the artist just needs to be able to put it into a folder that the game can draw from. But at the time, the way we had it set up with Unity, we had to use a full um, full installation. So there's another case study uh, by the game Space, the developer Space Ape, who have worked out their footprint at cloud being 50% of their um, their footprint. Cloud computing is 50% of their carbon footprint. So if they could find a way to completely do away with cloud computing, which is impossible, they yeah. could cut it by 50%. But if they could cut their cloud computing by uh, 50%, um, maybe by instead of running a continuous integration every 10 minutes, run it once a day, something along those lines, they could you know, cut a quarter off their emissions. Imagine the day when big tech decides to go. Okay, for the sake, for the safety of the, of planet Earth and for climate change, we're gonna revert everything back to fifty six k. That'll never happen because um, the tech companies make more money with higher internet speeds. Yeah, but yeah. it is a funny thing to think about, and I do think there is an argument to be made for optimizing existing tech rather than creating new tech. And I kind of wonder sometimes what the uh, industry would look like if we were all still stuck on 8-bit CPUs. (laughs) Uh, It reminds me of that. um, It reminds me of... There used to be an old... I'm not sure sure whether you've seen the movie Iron Sky. Uh, I've... No, actually, I did... I remember reading about that when they were making it and being really excited to check it out and completely forgot about it. It's a it's a the story is basically Nazis about, on like, the moon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, what there's one scene where they capture the soldier, and there's um, and he's like, "What do you have on there? It's it's a computer, an iPhone." <laughs> it's like, "No, that's a computer." He's like, it, "It's like his room's just a one big bulky box computer." I'm like, "Damn, <laughs> man, talk about yeah. getting over the times." So that's a case where it's not true that um old stuff is better. But rather than chasing the incremental improvements from, say, the 20, uh, the GTX 2000 series to the 3000 series, what if we stretched out the 2000 series and wrote better software to push it harder? There's, um, it would also come down to whether they do a die shrink, their process nodes, all sorts of complicated hardware stuff. But um, it's... Uh, I think it's something worth looking into. Yeah, uh, I got uh, there. There isn't. There is one more thing I need to ask though. Does the report ever say anything about game remasters? Like Halo, for example. They they 
okay, we they constantly always do a remaster of every one of their games. Um, no, they've only done one remaster of Halo. A better example would be Skyrim, tenth oh. anniversary edition coming out this year. <laughs> I will never um, understand that. <laughs> How is that possible? That is the ultimate example of asset reuse. You're reusing your assets so much, you're really not changing anything at all. Nah. <laughs> but yeah, like with remasters, for example, like they they would be taking a lot lot more um resource um carbon emissions and stuff as well, wouldn't they? Why? Just to try and keep the graphics um more updated and stuff. Like, not like, any more uh, than making a new game. Like, I can run a DOS game on my computer right now. I'm pretty sure the DOS game will run with using less power by itself than the equivalent computer from 30 years ago. Um, but my whole computer probably offsets that because even though I'm running it on a uh, more efficient CPU, the CPU itself is so much bigger, there's more cores. So... Um, but if I took that game and remastered it into Super HD 4K ray tracing, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the, the whole works. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I'd do that to a 2D game from 30 years ago, but for the sake of the argument, um, that would push my computer harder using more power. But would it do more than if I made a brand new game pushing my computer the same amount? I don't think so. Mm, okay. Uh, yes, um, I think um, one more point I've got from this is about the Games Console's Voluntary Agreement. So in the European Commission, Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo uh, have to meet certain guidelines. So there's time limits for automatic power down if you leave it sitting on its own and don't touch it. Power caps for how much power it's allowed to use when you're just watching a movie or going through the uh, the dashboard. Um out-of-warranty repair service and providing information to help maintain their consoles. Now, what I really like about the latest gen of consoles and the one before is that they are decently easy for a person with um, to repair. Now, I, I have no way of getting the correct chips or resoldering them. Someone could do that with the right equipment, but I personally can't. But my uh, fiancé's family... Uh, I almost keep saying girlfriend. I've only been engaged for a few weeks, but um, <laughs> a fiance's family have an Xbox One, one just just the one I think, and that's a uh, secondhand to begin with from a family friend who upgraded to a One X or whatever it's called. Um, the hard drive is cactus, so I've brought it back with me from the last time I went to visit them, and I'm replacing the hard drive in there, which is complicated i need to take the whole thing apart but not too difficult and hard drives are a wear item in um in consoles i think of basically anything with a moving part is a wear item in a console and i think chances are you're more likely to break the moving part than you are to break the um silicon and in this case as far as i can tell as long as i set the hard drive up with the correct format uh, before I put it in, so format it to FAT32 or whatever the console expects, Yeah. Um, I need to do some more research and just double check. It's a much easier repair than it is for me to do the same thing to my original Xbox. Because with my original Xbox, 
if the I can't just swap the drive because it's got a uh, it's got DRM keys on it. Not really DRM, but the same sort of idea. The hard drive is keyed to the console, so I can't just swap it over. But the newer consoles, I can, which is wonderful. I can replace a wear item that will fail sooner or later with no hassle. And that keeps people from throwing their consoles away and creating e-waste. But what's amazing is that under the voluntary agreement, uh, they reckon that they can save huge amounts of electricity compared to running older generations of hardware, even though they are improving graphics capability. So the uh, latest generation of consoles has the same or lower power caps than last gen, even though they're more powerful. That's an example of what I was talking about with die shrinks and more efficient manufacturing. But yeah, um, I think that's, you know, that's everything from the white paper. So you got any more questions, DJ? Um, okay, so with all the, with, with all the, um, with all these, like, um, like I said, information that's been out there. So how long do you reckon before the games company starts implementing these recommendations? They already are. So the UKIE has a program called Playing for the Planet. So every time I say UKIE, I want to start singing Old MacDonald. E-I-E-I-O. Thank you for your day job. But the UKIE has, yeah, they call it Playing for the Planet. No, sorry, the UN has Playing for the Planet. UKIE wrote this paper to explain how to play for the planet. Man, they really got to come up with better names than play for the planet. Like, I like it, but that already has a big, um, a lot of people signed up for it. A lot of developers. <laughs> Google Stadia is in this. <laughs> yeah, Google Stadia saves the most carbon emissions by nobody using it. <laughs> of course, that's not. Um, look, the Google Stadia is a. A flop because nobody's using it, and all of those that hardware is going to go to waste. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I, I'm seeing the members list, and there's okay, there are some impressive ones like Ubisoft, for example, uh, Unity, uh, Supercell, uh, Supercell. The for those who are curious, Supercell, the, the studio behind uh, Clash of Titans, <laughs> uh, Sony Interactive, uh, Niantic. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of big names there, and um, it's not just developers. It's also companies that run game stores. Um, but these are the places where I'd expect to see these sorts of things uh, implemented. And some of them are even actually working on um, sort of raising awareness, which I don't know who isn't aware, but it's not the worst thing you can do at this point. Mm. So how long before we see more and more companies to try and push it? Like, I mean, like, like, okay, there, the, there is a, there is a, a handful of members have signed, have signed up. Like how long before we, let's see, uh, let's say Nintendo or, uh, Activision Blizzard. Well, if once again, yeah, that storm. Well, uh, Nintendo is already, uh, doing the voluntary agreement. So I think it would be good to see them join the playing for the planet initiative. Um, I am disappointed to not see people like Activision, Blizzard, and EA on the list. So there are some big names there, but 
they're all like double A names, not triple A names. Soft is, but uh, it, you've got to start somewhere. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, this has I only mean, been going for a year or two. Give it another few years, and yeah. Okay. Okay. What about the uh, indie devs? You reckon the indie devs will follow suit, or you reckon they'll just go, "Nah, it'd be fine." There are indie games that are part of this uh, of this group, and they are following the uh, the requirements as far as I'm aware. Like, there's even some. They have a green game gr- green game jam. There's too many duh sounds, <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you look at that, you can see a bunch of indie games there. Ah, interesting. So, Ghost Recon and Angry Birds too. Who knew? Yeah. And okay, and I mean these are these games are all like America based games. Like, what about games like, uh, for example, from Japan or? No, they're not. Other... Angry oh, no, Birds no. is by Rovio, who are from Sweden. Okay, fair enough. Okay. So that's literally the first option I see there. Ubisoft's head office is in France. Uh, okay, I get that. Ninety percent sure. Anyway, um, <laughs> I know but, they like... have offices in Canada, probably the US, but I think the they're in the. Their main office is France. Uh, their main headquarters is in France. You're right. Yeah, so it's not just a US initiative. Um, actually, it seems to be a lot of European stuff in here. Yeah. Uh, the voluntary agreement, a lot of the companies signed up for this are based in Europe. I think that there are a couple from China, which is int- which is funny. Like China, one of the oh, biggest polluters on the planet. They are, but mostly because we made them. Yeah, yeah. The um, the clever lie that has been recycling and offshoring industry to reduce the greenhouse emissions in third world countries has been dumping it all on third world countries. And that's why their numbers look so bad. Mm-hmm. But China is definitely pushing for, for green. They build tons of green power sources. Yeah. And that's why they're getting better computers than us. <laughs> I still can't get over how blatant that was. How <laughs> <laughs> oh. all of the it's no hackers don't have better computers, and you don't want to advertising better computers so people can hack better. Why it hurts my soul. <laughs> Anyways, um. With the interest of time, we should uh, move on. Uh, speaking of hackers, <laughs> um, a new study has highlighted that more than 80% of all hacking-related breaches happen due to compromised and weak credentials with 3 billion username and password combinations stolen in 2016 alone. That's true. The easiest way to hack someone is to just work out their password. In fact, I don't know if it's still online, but um, back in, oh, what was it, 2013, Adobe got hacked, and what we ended up with was hash, which let, let us know how many letters the password was, <laughs> and the password hints, and somebody made a crossword of uh, of hacked passwords. Oh, I, oh yeah, I see it, I see it. Uh, they made a, yeah, they made a list. <laughs> So, such as, there were a couple such as QWERTY, uh, 123123, I love you, let me yeah. in. The easy <laughs> level is just embarrassing. <laughs> um, oh, here we go. Uh, so there's uh, 
password adobe123 uh photoshop yeah. macromedia <laughs> azoti all a's at 654321 <laughs> yeah i think um the ui looks different but it has been several years so i think i found the the crossword or one very similar so uh the implementation of the uh, two ta- two factor authentication which aims to provide an additional layer has become a necessity because of that. And it works too because uh, this authentication has blocked 99% of all the automated attacks. Yeah, SMS turns out is awful for a two-factor authentication because there's a common attack called simjacking where you basically go to the uh, phone provider and ask them to transfer the phone number to a new SIM steal the phone number, and then use it to breach someone's 2FA because they just don't uh, don't verify your identity well enough. Yeah, they call it sw- SIM swapping as well. That's the other name. And uh, one of the tools they use is called Modlishka, uh, which is leveraging a technique, used, uh, a technique called reverse proxy. And this facilitates communication between the victim and the, ser- and the service being impersonated. So in the case of Modlishka, it will intercept communication between a genuine service and a victim and will track and record the victim's interaction with the service, including any login credentials it may use. So if an attacker has access to your credentials and manages to log into your Google Play account on a laptop, uh, they can then install any app and they will likely um, automatically onto your smart- install that app onto your smartphone. I am constantly amazed at the ingenuity of hackers. <laughs> and I'm surprised how, like, uh, the hackers are so, like, fast in these responses. Like, the companies are not, like, they're not really paying attention to it. They're like, oh, it's it's getting there. We'll, we'll take our own time. Yeah, a lot of companies don't take cybersecurity seriously until they get hacked. And by then it's too late. Yep. And then they, uh, and then they... They get ransomed, and they some of them do pay the ransom, even though they're not la- they're not supposed to. Yes, legally you're not supposed to. People are going to do it anyway. So there. So what's the alternative? So to protect to be protected online, just uh, check your initial line of defense is secure. Uh, check your password. If it's compromised, there are a number of security programs that will let you do this. The best one, and the one that every other source is based on, as far as I'm aware, is Have I Been Pwned? Uh, The URL is literally haveibeenpwned.com. It's run by a security researcher who has constantly proven that he is on the level. So you can feel safe putting your stuff in there. You shouldn't put in a password that you are already using. But just in case someone does a man-in-the-middle attack and manages to catch your password as you send it to Have I Been Pwned. But the um, they have a really good service. If you prove that you own an email address, they will tell you if your um, account details show up in any breaches. Okay, I put in one of my email addresses and it's saying that, yes, I have been, yeah... Okay, so it'll tell you which breach that is and how long ago that was, and that can give you an idea of whether you should um, 
change your password or not. So, you know, if you've changed your password since that's happened, you should be fine. Unless your password is just old password plus one or with a one at the end or something. Mm-hmm. God, it it hurts. I work in IT and sometimes people give me their passwords. They shouldn't, but they do. And it hurts when the password is like January 123. <laughs> I'm like, yes, it technically gets around uh, the password requirements, but no, no, no. We um, have certain password requirements that are mandated because of the type of business we are. And unfortunately, um, the way it's configured, I'm not actually in charge of that, but I did raise an issue to get it fixed. Um, if, it, if it's possible, I'm not really sure. Uh, but yeah, technically, with all the requirements, you know, capital letters, lower cases, 10 letters long, special characters, something like January 123 exclamation mark would pass. But it's not a good password. Nobody <laughs> use it, please. Um, because hackers will try to log into your account and they will run a software that checks a hundred passwords a minute and they will do it until they get in using stuff like that. They don't try to guess what your password is. They just hope that you are one of the people who has used such a dumb password. (laughs) Oh man. And you know, really sorry if anyone who, um, uses that as a password hears this. But please, change it. <laughs> okay, but what about those people that have, like, sophisticated malware? Uh, they are a completely different kind of threat. Um, people who want to hack you will eventually get in sooner or later. The best you can do is reduce your vulnerability to it so that nobody wants to hack you. You're, by improving the security of your business or your service, whatever you're running... You change your threat model from bored teenager in the basement to uh, government hackers. And so you kind of want to be as secure as possible so that the only people coming after you are like government hackers, because we all know about Russian hackers and Chinese hackers. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are Australian hackers. We just don't hear about them. Um, but the they won't be interested in hacking you because you're not a target for them. Mm. But eventually there will... I don't mean to discourage people, but eventually there will be a breach. Uh, but the more you do to protect yourself means that the less likely it is to happen and the less you will lose when it does happen. Uh, this article, interestingly enough, said that if you... An alternative for that is to use a dedicated hardware device known as a YubiKey. Yeah, so we're in two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication. If you, There are different factors. What we refer to the three main factors are something you are, so your fingerprint, your retina scan, something you know, your password, and something you have, which is your key card. So a proper two-factor... Uh, Something you have in most cases is your phone number, but that's not really secure because it's so easy to steal someone's phone number. So something like Google Authenticator is more secure because it uh, uses encryption and it's harder for someone to get their hands on it than it is for them to simjack you. Uh, Something you have is your key card or your YubiKey. If you work at like a top secret government lab 
and you have to swipe your key card to get in and then scan your eyeball and then put in a password. <laughs> That's three factors, which is super secure because a hacker has to steal your key card, steal your eyeball, and steal your password. You just, it's a game of chance. Well, no, it's a game of making it not worth the effort for someone to hack you. Okay, but what about those devices? Like, I, I remember once uh, some banks would offer this. Like, uh, there'd be a little device. Oh, the RSA keys? keys? Yeah, those yeah. Are, those ones with That's the numbers a something that you have. RSA keys? Yeah. So in that case, the RSA key is synchronized to the home server, but has no like mobile connection in it. It just has a very accurate clock, and it generates a new password every minute or so. Um, the goal there is that someone trying to hack your account needs to know your password and have your uh, your key. And because the code on the key changes every minute, if they see your key and steal your password, they have to get in within a minute or so. It's not something that someone can look at, run away, and do the next day. Yeah. That so that would be under a something you know because you have to enter your password and a something you have because you have the the token. Yeah. Yeah, essentially these methods need to go beyond the two factor and towards a multi factor authentica- authentication environment where me- multiple methods of authentication are simultaneously deployed. But here's okay, here's my question with uh on multiple factor authentication, okay? Wouldn't that uh, like a two factor authentication? Okay, it's minimal. You don't need to like you don't need to stress too much. But with a multi factor, you're kind of opening yourself to a lot more. Like, yeah, sure, you do have uh, more protection, but at the same time, there's more ways to hack, go through it. Like a facial recognition, for example. Like you can people can me- people can fool that, for example, or a voice recognition as well. You can people can fool that as well. You know? Yes, but um, properly done, it is significantly harder to fool. The problem with passwords is that if you just use a password and you um, you write it down somewhere or someone sees you typing it in, they can go and get in, no questions asked. But the goal of using your voice ID or your fingerprint is that it's something you have uh, which someone can't take away from you without more effort with a voice id maybe they could record you maybe they could get someone who sounds like you um with a fingerprint they need to chop off your finger or somehow replicate your fingerprint which not impossible but you're just raising the bar yeah so in other words it it, it creates more effort for the bad guy for example yeah okay yeah so the goal is to make more effort for the bad guy so that they can't be bothered hacking you so uh for our final topic we're we have the story of Hotel Transylvania and how it's m- moving if its theatrical run to go for the streaming option on Amazon Prime. Plenty of room at the Hotel Transylvania. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so this decision to, to skip the theaters and head to Prime Video with the uh, CG animated pick is understood to be in the early stage and could result in a deal of around $100 million. Yeah, we um, I had an interesting thought about this when you brought it up the other night. Yeah. That it used to be, so this is Hotel Transylvania 4. I'm not expecting any, you know, groundbreaking um, movie. I mean, most kids' movies by the fourth movie in the series aren't great anymore. 
Shrek pulled yeah, it off. Yeah. The fourth Shrek is pretty good. But um, so I'm not expecting anything, you know, mind blowing. But it did get me thinking lots of movies are going to streaming now. And up until the last year, it was pretty much a sign that if a movie went straight to DVD or straight to streaming, it was going to be shit. <laughs> or, or that, or it was reduced to, we'll see you at the afternoon, at lunchtime on, on, a, on, a, on a horrible TV channel. <laughs> but yeah, because of COVID, like it's, it changed the game in, in terms of streaming services have exploded. And and yeah, we're seeing a lot of simultaneous releases. And I will say this, okay? It's a nice idea, but the problem when you put a film onto a when you when you put the film onto the internet, you can bet your money it'll be it'll be on the high seas within a matter of hours. Yeah, which is why they try to make it hard by using things like HTCP and other tools. I've noticed, um, like. I was watching a show on Netflix the other recently and noticed a cameo I wanted to point out to my friends. Couldn't screenshot it. It would only come up as a black screen. Mm-hmm. So they try to make it harder. I probably could have gotten around with it if I'd cared. But um, in fact, I wonder if OBS could do that. I probably shouldn't be doing this live and telling people how to hack it. But <laughs> we, we, we could just say, uh, okay... Uh, we will just warn you: if you do this, we, uh, the cops will find out. You wouldn't download a car. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh! I remember those ad- those ads were insane. <laughs> I love the IT crowd parody. <laughs> you wouldn't steal a policeman's ha- shoot a policeman and steal his hat <laughs> and use the hat as a bathroom and send the hat to his widow and then steal it again. <laughs> Oh, that, those were good. Those were funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's not, um, you know, not impossible to pirate a movie that comes out on streaming, but it's not the not the hardest either. You can probably get a movie that's released on streaming cheaper. Well, not cheaper, sorry, in higher quality than you would from a traditional camera. Yeah. Like back and, in the day when people used to sneak cameras into movie theaters. <laughs> I remember, uh, I don't know whether you remember this, when, but when the Simpsons movie came out, some idiot decided to take a camcorder in it, um, record the whole movie, and post it up on YouTube. They, yeah. it, everybody went nuts after that. Okay, so OBS can't do it. <laughs> I'm sure there's a hacked version of OBS or something that will do it, though. Oh, uh, and, and here's the sad, and, and here's the sad part, right? Like companies are now accepting the whole dream, uh, accepting the whole like let's put this into the uh, into on simultaneous releasing onto the apps because they've they've decided okay we need money, like they've I think yeah. they've decided like all right because you know what of the thin margins <laughs> the thin margins. Well, yeah, yeah. They, I think they decided, like, you know what? Because of this unspecified virus of unknown origin, um, we're gonna like put this onto the internet services. And I think the reason why they do it, they're doing the whole streaming thing because they found that it's the fastest way to get money off from people. Because let's let's. Put I think this it's in- the only way. Yeah, it's because the, only the way cinemas for- have been closed for you know off and on in Australia, but in other places they've been closed for. You know, 18 months now. 
Yeah. So and- I think they're deciding that the only way to make money on this investment right now is to release on streaming. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, that's the thing. You can't afford to put a multi-million dollar movie in, in the can and in the can and wait for the th- and hope to hope to God like the theaters will reopen. Like, assuming that there are any any of the theaters left, not, and not only do you not only do you lose the momentum and public interest for the people uh, to get to promote the movie, people will j- will gradually forget about this. Yeah, and then, you got to deal with marketing. Yeah. So. I expect when um, movies start going back to cinemas, there will be huge marketing pushes to remind people. We're already kind of seeing that with um, the movies that go to streaming. Yeah, yeah, and, and not to mention, like the uh, and if they can't afford the marketing, they have to rack up huge debts. I mean, the, the like, films don't finance it by themselves. Funnily enough, they ha- they don't tend to have millions of dollars lying around in the in the wake. Like they take out multiple loans from investors, and the thing about these loans, you have to pay them back. I mean, most yeah, of the time, so it yeah. makes sense that they're going to try to um, make their money back. Yeah, and and you also and you have to start paying the interest right away. And the, the longer you leave that loan uh, loan outstanding, the more interest you have to incur. incur. And if you try and duck them away, uh, they'll send their uh, debt collectors to break your fling- to break your fingers, basically. <laughs> uh, but it's Hollywood, so they never pay any interest because they never actually technically made money. Yeah, yeah. But and- I do think it's um, something to... Um, yeah, so what I really wanted to talk about, though, was that um, the quality shift. So, like I said, it used to be if you go straight to streaming, it's rubbish. But now all of the good movies coming out on streaming. What do we do? How do we categorize them? How do we know if a movie's shit or not? I can't <laughs> handle it. I think it will come down to two things: how terrible the movie's written. <laughs> I mean, look at Wonder Woman 1984, for example. <laughs> when that movie came out on streaming services, man, that movie was shit. <laughs> it still did pretty well. Oh, come on, it still did pretty well. Yeah, sure. How much debt did it incur just to get that movie out? Like, how many how many times was it delayed as well? And not to mention, like, this, uh, and not to mention, like, with the recent movie of Black Widow, Disney has decided, like, a couple of actors have, th- have decided, you know what? We're being ripped off here. Yeah, because their contracts say cinema takings and... Knowing Hollywood, I wouldn't be surprised if they're saying that it came out on streaming, not in the cinema, so you don't get anything. <laughs> but he, he, uh, uh, the, interesting you mentioned that because here's the thing. like to, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because, believe it or not, studios do care about making money. Well, with, not, to, not, not that you think so with all, the, with all the movies that's been churning out lately. And... The longer, you wait for, the longer you wait for the movies, the more debt they rack up and the less chance they'll they'd be likely to make a profit. Oh, so, are you saying that it's the same thing that's happened to just about every uh, business in the last 18 months? Can't yeah. make money because it's closed. At least <laughs> movies have a way out. But... Yeah. But the way out's kind of like, eh, it's broken in a sense I'm where... happy for it. It's ha- I'm <laughs> perfectly happy to go to a mixed release schedule in the future, have movies release at home and in cinemas. Okay, because but... Because then... I would like in the future to be able to decide whether I want to see a movie 
in person or at home lying on my bed. Now, the movie theater is going to be a bigger screen and better sound system than most people have at home. So most people are probably still going to go there. But a movie like A Quiet Place, where all the suspense is the quiet, I don't want to hear people talking in the movie. <laughs> so I want to have that option. But the problem would be that, like, like I get, I get where you come from. Like, you rather, like, you would watch a movie uh, in cinemas and in the and online as well. But the problem would be is how would you tighten the leash in terms of people trying to sail the high seas? If you get what um, I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't try to stop people pirating because you can't. I yep. would make it easier for people to access the movies. Because in the games industry, it's been known for a long time that piracy is a service problem, not a people problem. People will pay for games if you let them. Of course, there's a certain fraction of people who will pirate anyway. But if I can find a movie on Netflix, I don't have a reason to pirate it. I have a Netflix account. I think, actually, they're shooting themselves in the foot. I know having more options is better for the comp for competition, but I think having literally every company split off to their own streaming service is shooting themselves in the foot because now you're going to have more difficulty finding the movie. You need to sign up for a separate service. It's a whole bunch of friction. And the more friction you put in front of someone, the more likely they are to pirate. So I don't think adding DRM or chasing pirates is the way to go i think the way to go is to work on fixing um the streaming services okay. yeah i i agree with you there yeah i agree i agree and, and i think it, it will it will take a very long time because yeah the pro like with the current model and <laughs> how broken it is it's gonna be a while before they change the pricing structures and and whatnot so yeah I, think... I just think that they shouldn't be trying to screw over their actors and they should still be paying them even though it's going to uh, home releases yeah. because the actors still worked. On one hand, when I see this, I'm like, you got paid two, 20 million bucks to be in the movie, get over it. But on the other hand, I see Disney, the evil company, because we all know the mouse is evil, <laughs> exploiting people. And I don't like that either. Yeah, I'd rather the actors get paid what they deserve than Disney exploit people and use it as an excuse to make even more money so they can suppress the public domain even further. <laughs> Curiously, though, um, you saw the Mulan movie, right? No. Okay, because I remember like some of the movies were released for free. You say that like they it's were a question? For free, I think. Yeah, they were they were released for free, and my question my question would be like. Do you reckon like releasing movies for free, even though they were they made like a lot of money, they used a lot of money to make that that uh, the dang thing, um, is a good idea? Well, releasing for free obviously doesn't make you any money directly, but it does get people onto your service, and once you have them on your service, they're more likely to stay there. Like I said, friction, people, and also inertia. People don't like change. It's why. Just about every subscription service in the world, gyms, insurance, etc., offers new um, new user sign-up bonuses. They don't ever give it out to the people who have been there for 10 years, because the people who have been there for 10 years are still going to pay. But the goal is to get new people in to increase the money you're making. 
Yeah. And the reason that's viable is because people are too lazy to change or too busy or don't have the energy. It's, yeah. yeah. All right. Anyways, uh, we'll take a short break and, we, and uh, we'll be back with the shout outs, remembrances, famous birthdays, and events of interest. This podcast is brought to you by whoever it puts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, so uh, on to our shout-out. So on the 15th of August, uh, we passed the 30th anniv- 35th anniversary of Starflight, an open-world exploration combat and trading RPG by Binary Systems. It's first released on the IBM PCs and later on most home computer brands. The player, a Starship captain, is able to mine, fight, and conduct diplomacy with procedurally generated alien species. A doomsday plot is about a about a threat that could destroy all life unwinds, but the player is free to do whatever they want. Clearly, the developers of Mass Effect were paying attention. (laughs) The director of Mass Effect even admitted that it was a big inspiration. The game took 15 man years across the three actual years to be developed. Impressively, the procedural generation is about to create an entire universe with only 128k of RAM. The Fractal Generator allowed the game to feature 800 planets and the procedural generated lifeforms inspired Dwarf Fortress Forgotten Beasts. That's impressive. And right now, it's uh, available for like a dollar on GOG. Oh, yeah. Um, I looked it up the other day to find out if it was available on Abandonia or anything. Turns out GOG has gone and put it together in a, a package so it runs on modern systems. And it's... um currently on sale for one dollar it doesn't say when that will end but you know it's um both games in the series for 75 percent off right now so pretty cheap even when it's not on sale yeah i uh interestingly this game reminds me of another um space rpg game i don't know whether you're familiar with this it's called freelancer yes i haven't played that one but i do know of it yeah i saw the uh, box art for that and it was saying like Fight mine and do all do crazy things. This is a space space exploration game. I, oh, I'm gonna try that at some point. Although I will say hey, that this. guy looks like Mal Reynolds. <laughs> that even looks like the nose of fire of Serenity. <laughs> I do actually have that because I got um a while back a package of all of the Descent games. Yeah. Uh, or maybe just the two actually, Descent and Free Space. There's more of them, I'm pretty sure. But um, yeah, um. I have played Descent, but never got to Free Space. We'll be putting in the uh, GOG offer on our show notes, so feel free to check it out. And uh, Yes, hopefully it's still going by the time we get there. Yeah. So uh, moving along, a panda in Singapore get, gave birth to the on the 10th of August, bringing the total of three captive pandas born in the past few weeks. The parents, Kai Kai and Jia Jia, are, born to, are due to finish their 10-year loan from China next year. Wonderful news. Everyone yeah, loves no. pandas. 
What's interesting? What's interesting is how like one one week one panda, two next week another panda. If we could get another panda next week, that'd be amazing. Well, this was only one birth though, so we'd have to have half a panda because it's obviously halving each time. <laughs> uh, on the seventeenth of August, the creator of the puzzle Sudoku passed away at sixty-nine. Maki Ki- Kaiji uh, wanted to make a puzzle for children and people who didn't want to think too hard. He originally named it Sujiwa Dokushin ni Kairu, which means numbers should be single, a bachelor. <laughs> Honestly, these translations. <laughs> I say that is a mouthful, like even in Japanese. Sujiwa Dokushin ni Kairu. Like, I'm happy it's Sudoku. <laughs> The current name, formed from the Japanese words for numbers and single, is much less of a mouthful. Kaiji also called, was also called the grandfather of Sudoku. Which is odd, like, does that imply there is a father of Sudoku? <laughs> I don't know, that was a, a weird line in the article, but... I know, it's... <laughs> grandfather of Sudoku. Oh. Uh, so, a day later, we passed the 15th anniversary of Snakes on a Plane. The title kind of gives away the entire concept. The writer, David D'Alessandro, was inspired by news articles about brown tree snakes climbing in the aircraft during World War II. He originally featured a single brown tree snake, but was inspired by aliens to add boar snakes. (laughs) It's like, hey, uh, I saw an alien the other day. Let's add more snakes. Good thing it was... Well, it worked. Yeah. I mean, good thing it was aliens and not Jaws. <laughs> so, uh, filming used more but than... But can four. you imagine Jaws with more sharks, though? Oh, no. Oh, we, actually, actually, Sharknado. Yeah, that's close enough. <laughs> uh, so, filming used more than 450 snakes, but mo- most of the final film used animatronics and CGI... Uh, each snake had a production name, which could have made the credits a little long, <laughs> little really long. Uh, Samuel Jackson required his contract to include the the eight meter social distancing clause just to keep the snakes away from him. <laughs> Not everybody likes it. And I also remember, like, uh, originally, uh, he he didn't want to put snakes on a plane. And then Samuel Jackson, like, they changed the name because of marketing or something. And then Samuel Jackson said, nah, screw you. I'm, if you if you do not, don't, don't change the name. If you change the name, I'm out of this film project. And they decided to go back to go back with Snakes of the Plane. It works. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, remembrances. So, on the 17th of August, 2012, Victor Poor developed the developer of the Intel 808 processor passed away. He worked at Computer Terminal Corporation, who produced the first personal computer, the DataPoint 2200, programmable terminal using the 808. Poor and an amateur, an amateur co- radio colleague, Harry Pyle, hey, PNP, <laughs> produced the underlying architecture of the 808 on a living room floor. Their friend, jo- Jonathan Schmidt, wrote communication software for their chip. They pitched the design to Texas in- Instruments and Intel with encouragement from their founders of CTC. He also oversaw development of ArcNet, an early LAN project. Poor died at 79 in Florida. And no, he did not die poorly. Double tsh. 
That was terrible. <laughs> so, uh, although I have famous birthdays, on the same day in 1896, Leslie Richard Groves Jr. was born. He oversaw the construction of the Pentagon and directed almost every aspect of the Manhattan Project. He was the he was one dressed down by Eisenhower, who was then chief uh, army chief of staff, general of the army, and told he would never become chief of engineers. Although he never became chief, leading the Manhattan Project had to be a good way of proving your worth. <laughs> and I bet you imagine working at the Manhattan Project. How much did that mentally screw you up afterwards? Well, there is the famous "I have become deaf destroyer of worlds" line. But I'm not aware of any of the people working on the project actually uh, being that traumatized. Like they acknowledged that what they did was uh, extreme, but it was to win an extreme war. So I remember Einstein was very depressed after that. Yeah, a few people were. They were, um, you know, they're pretty upset that you know they worked on creating something so destructive. But at the same time, they joined the Manhattan Project because they wanted to see the war end. And they didn't want Germany to get it first, which Germany made the lovely mistake of chasing away all the Jewish scientists who then uh-huh. went on to work in the Manhattan Project. Wait, wasn't Operation Paperclip a thing during that time as well? No, that was after the war. Ah, uh, okay. I'm not aware of any uh, paperclip scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project. Okay. So uh, on to our events of interest. In 1978, Ben Abruzzo, uh, Maxi Anderson, and Larry Newman completed the first hot air balloon crossing the Atlantic in the Double Eagle 2. It took them 137 hours and 6 minutes to travel from Perske Isle, USA, and um, to Misery. France. Where they touched down on the 17th of August, Newman planned to hang glide out of the out of the balloon, but had to dump his hang glider as ballast. Authorities planned to receive them at Le, Le Bourget Airfield, where Sh- Charles Lindbergh had landed, but the crew declined as it was too risky to cross populated suburbs. The men had to draw to decide who would sleep with in the same bed what, that Lindbergh had used in the U.S. Embassy, with Newman winning. The men and their spouses were given a free ride in a Concorde back to the U.S. Man, could you imagine being that, being the guy who won the the bed? That would be pretty cool. <laughs> it's like, I put, I won Charles Lindbergh's bed. <laughs> Although it'd be pretty musty, though. I assume they've changed the sheets sometime in the <laughs> thirty <laughs> the... years or forty years or whatever it was. <laughs> rare, rare. Uh, so, uh, finally, on the same day in 1939, Buck Rogers, the serial, was released in Portugal. The well-known character was a 20th century pu- pilot who, along with a friend, was transported 500 years in the future via suspended animation. In the original comic, Buck was a World War I pilot. For some reason, almost every element was changed while keeping the basic plot. Possibly this version of the story was actually based on a piece of unofficial published Flash Gordon fanfic. After this release, the comic revisited Buck's origin, stating that Buck was searching for a meteor for use in spaceship construction, only for gas contained in the meteor to knock him out for 500 years. Did you ever like that? Uh, did you ever like the story though? I actually haven't seen Buck Rogers. 
Uh, for me, I, I'm more familiar with uh, the the parody edition, uh, which is Duck Dodgers and the Hero of the 24th Century. What's that from? Uh, that's actually that's actually from um, Warner Brothers. Hang on a second. I'll, yeah, that's right. Duck Dodgers in the 24th and a half century. It was okay. a cla- it was a classic Warner Brothers cartoon. But uh, anyways, that's all we have for this week. Uh, where can they find us, Professor? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everywhere. <laughs> well, uh, uh, we can, they can also find us on that'snotcanada.com. We're in archive of our old episodes. And you can find some new podcasts as well, such as Cast Party. So, uh, quiet on the set. We're rolling in three, two, welcome to Cast Party, a Dungeons and Dragons podcast thrust into the world of D&D for cast and crew members from a Hollywood film set to find themselves with new powers in very new places on an adventure none of them actually knew how to process. Follow along as our director, Colin McManus, leads our cast and crew consisting of Ryan McManus, Anna Brisbane, Nigel Deacon, and Vince Perino through this gripping and hilarious story. So it's actors getting transported into D&D, is it? Yep. Wow, this might be fun to check out. Yeah. Uh, do we know who the cast are? Uh, I think I read them initially, but uh, second. Uh, so it's uh, director Colin McManus. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought those were character names. Ah, uh, right, right, right. Okay, cool. cool. That's fair. That's fair. So uh, anyways, uh, take care of each other. Look after yourselves and stay hy- hydrated. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.